Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. Today, we're talking about Loki, the 2021 Marvel TV series currently available for streaming on Disney+. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score for season one is 92%. And the critics' consensus reads, a delightful diversion from the MCU as we know it, Loki successfully sees star Tom Hiddleston leap from beloved villain to endearing anti-hero with a little help from Owen Wilson, in a series that's as off-kilter, charming, and vaguely dangerous as the demigod himself. My guest today is Douglas No, the head of the makeup department. Douglas, you've been working in the industry for 30 years. More important, even than anything we talk about today, is the fact that you and I first worked together back in 1999. But this is your first appearance on the podcast. Welcome to Below the Line. Thanks, kid. Nice to be here. Before we go any further, listeners, please note, we're going to take a meandering path to get there, but eventually there will be spoilers for Loki the series, so this is your warning. But let's get underway. Douglas, back in 1999, you and I first worked together on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Does your listening audience know what a badass you were 22 years ago? <laughs> I like to think that they get I, that I sort tell... of implicitly through the podcast. But... <laughs> let's hope so. But I tell this story, uh, I've told this story probably 40 or 50 times over the last 22 years, but uh, it was probably a Monday or Tuesday morning. I was strolling in with my Frappuccino. It was still dark. You're walking towards me and I see you're talking on your radio, which is how you guys communicate, of course. And I hear you say, yes, you are correct. There is no I in team, but there is an I in kiss my ass. <laughs> and I just thought, that's somebody I got to keep in touch with right there. <laughs> and then, of course, we've seen each other through the years. I think the last time we worked uh, uh, shoulder to shoulder was the Majestic, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, 2001. We, that, was, that was the last time Majestic. I think before that, I was also a trainee on Planet of the Apes. That's right. And so, but yes, that was such right. a colossal, massive thing. Also the biggest a, at its time. Yeah. <laughs> also a podcast for another time, but Majestic is uh, the last time I think we were on the same set. But back to our time together on Buffy, I'm not quite sure what the context of that was. As a trainee on that show, I was definitely low man on that totem pole. And so to whom I would be speaking and why I would you have to- You clearly held your own. Yeah, you clearly <laughs> held your own. That's for sure. <laughs> Talking about Buffy, give me a sense of where Buffy fell into your early career and sort of as things have progressed over the years. Buffy came to me almost a decade after I had arrived in Los Angeles, been working my way ever so slowly as we did through the business and from job to job. I can't recall how I was recommended to him. It's been so long ago. The, Kenny Myers comes to mind. I, I, I got to wonder if he recommended me to Todd McIntosh because I, I ended up working on season three a little bit, I think on season two as well, but I did all of season four, which was massive and probably the series biggest season in regards to prosthetics and makeups and vampires, werewolves, demons, monsters of all kind. And uh, I have to say that one season, that nine months on that show was like a, a four-year course in prosthetic makeup. Because Todd, obviously, we all know. I don't know if Todd's been on your show. He has he's, not. He's so a, people a might genius. not know who Todd is. He's, a, he's what we used to call a renaissance man. He's one of these makeup guys. Like myself, I learned to do everything. You did everything. You, there was no hiring out or handing it off. You learn to do everything. And that's very old school, you know, uh, way of thinking and, and maybe not appropriate now because there's so much now, obviously. But that one season, he brought in superstars. We now paint with a system called Skin Illustrator. It's basically tattoo-based inks. Fred Blau, 
was instrumental in bringing that to the world and to our knowledge in, uh, God, I believe the 60s and 70s. I think it was utilized on a movie called Tattoo. And the Illustrated Man is where it was formalized. Well, Kenny Myers and Richard Snell, rest his soul before he passed away, rethought and reformulated that system and expanded the color scheme by tenfold. And we were literally testing that product out on that season. We were making history and, and few people know that. Now we, that's how we paint. It's no longer so much rubber mask and grease paint and uh, creams and, and heavy makeups. It's very much those alcohol-based makeups. You know, we played endlessly on that season with those things. It was perfect timing. So Douglas, tell me a little about how that wave then did. I know you've worked a lot of film and television. You've gone uh, back and forth. Give me a sense sort of how things uh, progressed over the years from Buffy. The wonderful thing is, and I know many people say it, you never stop learning. If you choose to hold on to, or if you chose to hold on to your old ways of approaching your craft with all these new materials that support the new way of filming, you probably got pushed to the side. So it was just a matter of not keeping up. You, I guess you could have kept up, but it was a, a matter of becoming a part of it and pushing the limits and using those materials and those tools to do things that you didn't think were possible or to uh, gain a level of realism that was previously unattainable. So it was constantly raising the bar, pushing the envelope, so to speak. Well, so let me jump ahead. When did you first work with Tom Hiddleston? Oddly enough, although I never met him, I did see him. It was the, uh, I guess they call it the coronation scene in uh, Thor. I was there doing background. There were like 65 of us and I was 63 out of 65, something like that. I never went to set. I was just there doing background for a couple of days. So that was the first time I worked with him, but we didn't, we never were in the same room together. The first time we met and I worked with him was his first day on the start of principal photography for Avengers. They had done some pre-shoots, which uh, I believe John Blake and Alan Apone had handled because when Tom sat in my chair, I was made the introduction. First, I was given a choice. I don't know if you know this, uh, I was given a choice. John Blake, who's an old friend of mine, fantastic makeup artist, has done all of the uh, Avenger movies and is Robert Downey Jr.'s personal makeup artist. He and I met in December of 1990 at Alterian Studios, which is run by makeup effects guru Tony Gardner, did Zombieland 1 and 2, and now does the Child's Play movies. So John and I go way back. In fact, he was even on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or as I used to call it, Buffy the Weekend Slayer. <laughs> I had purchased a house, as you may know, in Santa Fe, and I thought, I'm going to roll the dice here and become a local. Let's see what happens. My first film as a local hire, I was the fourth makeup artist on The Avengers. And John said to me, listen, dude, you want to do Renner and Ruffalo or this new guy called Tom Hiddleston? He was the uh, brother in Thor. And I'm thinking, I kind of like that. That's kind of sounds fun. I have no idea who this guy is. Let's, let's do that. And the other part of the pitch was the Hulk thing. We were still in that transition world, believe it or not, because we actually did a practical Hulk. We had some muscle guys painted green with dots all over them for reference, but it was ultimately going to be a computer effect. So the things that happened to Renner, like the possession from Loki, were going to be handled in camera. So those makeups were going to be pretty straightforward. But John's pitch to me was, we're going to bust Loki up. Hulk, you know, batters him around a little bit. We're going to have some fun. You get to do whatever you want to his face. I said, I'm in. So, and John's guidelines were just from the pre-shoot, you know, and he basically gave me a, a list of a few colors and he let me run with it, which is amazing and a testament, not to me, but to John Blake and his trust and faith in the people he surrounds himself with. And 
I too try to do the same thing. That's a great barometer. You know, you're only as good as your weakest link. But that's how we met. We connected through music and I came in through the theater. So naturally we came together on theater topics of all kinds, especially Shakespeare, of course, the old bard. It was, you know, natural and easy. And uh, I thought that was that. Cut to, I think, gosh, a year and a half later, Dark World reshoots are going to be substantial. They shot it overseas and they're going to bring uh, the four months of work, about 10 weeks of work over the course of four months to Los Angeles. And both Tom and John threw my hat in the ring for that. So that landed in my lap. I think Tom maybe asked if I could be there for him, but John had put me in charge of the whole block. So I ran the reshoots for Dark World. We connected again. From there, we did uh, Comic-Con 2013, which was, I believe, the most YouTubed Comic-Con moment in history when he came out as Loki to the uh, Dark World panel and basically called Kevin Feige a, a mewling quim. Which, if anybody's seen Avengers, knows what that translates to. So there's the history in a nutshell, and a little more. Douglas, take it aside. For folks who are not familiar with what happens inside the trailer, explain a little bit to our listeners about the relationship between the department head and then being a personal, whether explicitly for someone or just the fact that you do do the same folks over and over for the ease of getting them ready. An overview would be to say it's all about team. At least it is for me. I mean, I know sometimes certain personalities get pushed to the forefront, you know, or in the spotlight, depending on where they lie on the crew, but that's irrelevant. It's always about team. It truly does take a village. And I tend to gravitate towards department heads that think the same way. And I tend to, you know, try to hire people that are strong, very often stronger than myself and have stronger resumes. And leaning into that, not being afraid of that, being sure and confident in your own uh, abilities and, and having your own ego intact and just trusting that whatever happens is meant to be, acting in good faith by surrounding yourself with good people. Uh, case in point on, on Loki, my second was Dennis Lydiard, who's got seven years more experience than I do, a much stronger resume, and has been nominated for an Academy Award. I needed his counsel and his scheduling uh, chops. I needed that, you know, I, I can do it, but I need somebody who could do it great. That's the most important thing is not ever forgetting that you really only are as strong as your weakest link. So as a department head, I build everybody up. I hand people the ball and let them run because I know they can run. One thing I try to never ever do is put my thumbprint in their work. If there's a note that has to happen in the next 90 seconds, I whisper in their ear and let them know they've got 45 seconds by the end of this conversation, because here's what you need to do. I never, ever, ever posture or get in front of somebody else. Quite the opposite. I, again, you know, you, you build people up. Now, in light of that, when I'm brought on to a show that has been staffed or I'm, I'm the fourth, fifth, or sixth, I always am the fourth, fifth, or sixth I would want to have which is to say, know your place. It's real simple. I, I mean, it sounds simple and it should be simple. It really isn't always simple, but just know your place. Now, as a personal coming onto a show that somebody else's and I'm doing you know, uh, the lead or a, a supporting personal, again, it's about collaboration and having done your homework. As a personal, I come to the table. Kong Skull Island is a good example. I wasn't running the show. That was makeup maestro Bill Corso. And I was brought in to be Tom's personal but not exclusive. So I was essentially the third. So that's real simple. My priorities are be who I need to be to Tom. And then for everything else, 
be exactly who my boss needs me to be. He knows. And if it ever happens that there's a conflict in that situation, it's about conversation at that point. But Bill is a pro and he knew not to do or put anything in my lap that was going to get in Tom's way. I follow the same approach. I did Ragnarok reshoots. Again, Lydiard was my second. And uh, Ruffalo had a personal, Francisco Perez. Done. Francisco's a, a pro. He's got easily 15 years of experience on me. I don't need to get in his way. He knows what he's doing. I think it went something like this. Frank, it's great to hear you're joining us. I'm putting in an order with my beauty vendor. What can I get you? That was the extent of, you know, what, what do you need? I know you've got this. I'm not going to get in your way. Tell me what you need. You need a set chair, umbrella? Tell me. And I think that's the right approach, if you will. That leads itself to adaptability. And that plays right into being who you need to be. Recognizing the need for teamwork overall, tell me a little more about the role of a personal within one of these makeup teams. It's about being a team player. Like, for example, the Loki situation, I'm the boss, but also a personal, Tom's personal, the personal to number one. So it always goes back to, for me, surrounding myself with very capable people and pushing them to the front and letting them shine. I used to do it all. I used to do the leads and run the show and it's taxing. That's that game is, is there's nothing wrong with it, but it's for the young and my twenties and thirties, that was fine. But as, as I've gotten older, I've learned in order to play the long game, delegate, hand it off and try as you as much as you can to give credit where credit is due being secure enough in your own ego to hire people to shine and let them shine. Ned Neidhart is an old friend of mine. We went to high school together. He's a phenomenal makeup artist and has worked with me for years. He and I have an unspoken dialogue and those kind of relationships are wonderful and rare, but he, I know he's got my back. He's got no other agenda than to protect the greater good and serve the greater good. And I know that. So I can hand him things and if forced to make a decision, I can say, make the decision and tell me what we decided. There's that kind of trust which I know is rare, but I think that's ideal. Well, when we're talking about trust, I think as a personal, it's pretty clear that there also has to develop a trust between the actor and you as a makeup artist in both directions. No, we have a good rapport. And you, you said it, it's about developing trust. I always say to people, because I'm often asked, how do you become a personal? And I remember asking Jerry Quist this very same question, gosh, 20 years ago in the jungles of Hawaii, while we're on Tears of the Sun, sweating our tails off doing horrible blood gore effects that were never meant to be shown on camera, but were there for the actors to react from, which was a, a smart play on Antoine Fuqua's part. But I said to Jerry Quist 20 years ago, how is it you've maintained this relationship with Bruce Willis? And he said something I understood, but it sounds much more harsh than it would mean on the surface. He said, you know what, Douglas, don't become their friend. It's business. And he said, if you become friends, which Bruce and I have, that's fine, but it develops. You can't force that. And I've never forgotten that. It's exactly what has happened. I, I have never asked Tom what's next, not once, nor will I. He knows what's right. And I trust that. Like I said, those relationships, they develop. I think if you, if you try to force those things, you squeeze the person you're trying to hold on to right out of your hands. Uh, they know what's best for them and they know, you know, where your strengths and limitations are because they have also done their homework. I promise you, if you're touching a, a, an A-lister's face, he knows who you are and what you've done because they do their homework or their, their management has done their homework. I really do think with Tom and I, the biggest connection was our theater sensibility and 
also, I never treat stars like stars. I treat them well, but I treat them like human beings, like any dignified human being would want to be treated. I try to be the friend a friend would want to have. And Tom and I have developed a friendship. That's separate from the business relationship. So if something comes up and I think I'm perfect for it, but Tom goes a different direction, I trust Tom knows what he's doing. And that's what it boils down to. I would never question it. And he knows this. And I think that's part of the, uh, the allure, if you will, the attraction. He knows I want what's best for him, not what's best for me. So Douglas, when did you get the call to work on the show? Oh my goodness. I think, I want to say it was October of 2019. Marvel says jump. I, I say how high, you know, <laughs> but it was about six or eight weeks out. Tom had told me it was coming. You know, I have to back up and say from what we talked about earlier, I think it was, I saw the light. Tom had said to me that we were going to do Kong Skull Island. And then after we were going to do Ragnarok. And I said, that's great, buddy. I hope it works out. And he goes, dude, you're in the contract. It's going to work out. So <laughs> when he told me uh, about Loki, which he's, he kept under his hat for the longest time, which is a testament to his ability to keep his mouth closed, you know, and his, his, you know. Very important to survive in the Marvel universe that you can keep the secret you're supposed to keep. True. And he didn't tip any hands. It was already public knowledge when, you know, he and I spoke, he was in London and uh, he mentioned that it was going to happen in 2020. But beyond that, I didn't ask any more questions. It's tough when it comes to scheduling other things in my life not asking questions, but I still, you know, stand by that being the right thing. So I heard from him shortly before I heard from Marvel, but it was public knowledge at that point that season one Loki was going to be off and running in 2020. And did they know at the time that you were going to be filming in Atlanta? Was that the plan? Because I know they do a lot of the Marvel stuff in Atlanta. I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. But then at the end of 2019, we don't know that there's going to be this shutdown. Like what was the status yes, of things when COVID? We had done all of the prep work. We started in, in January of 2020 doing prep work in Atlanta. We started shooting, I believe, in February. And we shot about five weeks before that, that date, March 13th, came down. And it all happened very quickly. My second, uh, Dennis Lydiard, had been following the news and actually had warned me 10 days prior to any rumor of shutting down. So, I, and I wasn't in denial. I just, I was, I was focused on the task at hand. I just am very, very good at being in the moment. That delay came and initially it was going to be a week. Then it was going to be a month. And you know, the rest of the story, it rolled into a five month shutdown. When we got the call to come back, there were so many questions, you know, we stopped for five months. And I think the amazing part is you would never know that watching the series. You came back working under COVID protocols. And of course, because of the proximity and because it always involves your principles, COVID rules for hair and makeup is some of the most intense focus of what it takes to get back to work. So how much shooting was there after you came back? And was it longer than you would have expected because of the COVID effort to keep everybody safe? I think maybe a week or two was added. But we stayed on schedule. It's the thing about Marvel is they're a very, very tightly run ship. It's a very cohesive uh, group of creative people, all people that are on their game, some of them at the top of their game. So coming back, there were lots of creative Zoom meetings, of course, to bring everybody up to speed on any changes in venue or, or stage or approach. So that was all a very well oiled machine. And what I did, 
knowing that these protocols were going to be a huge factor in how we prepare our actors and maintain our actors every day with all those things in play and getting those things straightened out early on again all very smooth i did something i believe was the first time it was done and probably will not be done again the same way i took one of my makeup artists from the first 5 weeks of shooting named kaylee brooks a local there in atlanta and i put her on sanitation protocols Basically, the biggest change was when we started the show, we did the first five weeks, makeup and hair were in the same trailer. Because we wanted to space everybody out, we moved hair into their own trailer. Basically, makeup had a trailer and hair had a trailer. And Kaylee was a union makeup artist sanitizing other union makeup artists' materials and tools. And I say that that way because no one is going to know how we use our things and what the best way to clean them is going to be other than another makeup artist. So now I believe that's a PA position. Perhaps there's some training that comes with it. I, I'm not sure. I haven't been on a show big enough to require a, a sanitation PA. But something about me that has always been the case. I've been asked, how did it change my approach to makeup and my kit when we came back from COVID? And I said, you know, not much because I have always been methodically and medicinally clean. So much so that Bill Corso gave me the name Dr. No in the mid nineties. <laughs> All my makeup looks brand new. I sterilize it. Everything is bagged in clear plastic bags. This is before COVID. What changed? Um, we just upped our game. Ned Neidhart, uh, like I said, an old friend of mine, he upped the ante on the sanitation protocols. It was a matter of everybody was catching up. Nobody was scrambling. It was all very methodic. But we raised the bar on the whole sanitation. And I, again, I don't think you need to wave a flag or pound your chest. Actors and producers are smart people. They see what's going on. It's show business. And if you show your business, they know what's going on. You don't have to say anything. And I also think that move of making somebody that was already in the family part of the sanitation protocol system, I think that helped as well. Our leading lady, Sophia DiMartino, was breastfeeding. She, she's a new mom. And coming back from this five-month hiatus was truly terrifying for her. Now, I had already established her makeup. And she asked me if I would mind if she did her own makeup. How could I say no to that? Of course. It's like, we're here for you, whatever you need. She did a brilliant job, followed the design. She let me step in to do wounds and, and dirt. And at a certain point, uh, she was doing such a phenomenal job. I put a local makeup artist who has done some work with me in the past several shows uh, named Randy Owens Arroyo. I put her with Sophia and they got on so well that uh, Sophia ended up using uh, Randy to do her uh, beauty makeup for the uh, interviews and the wraparounds that they did while we were there in Atlanta with Sophia, which to me, that's success. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Randy and Sophia got along great. Again, that was the biggest, biggest change. There was a lot of, you know, cleaning ourselves between actors, but we already sanitize our hands. Skid, I think what was brought to our attention that was the most comforting was how clean we all all were in our approach to makeup already. Most of the sanitizing was the chairs, stations, and our tools. We kept ourselves and our makeup materials very clean, always have. Well, the challenges of COVID aside then, talk to me some about the specific challenges of the Loki look itself. You know, given that the character has developed up through Avengers, but even the bit in Avengers Endgame is jumping back to an earlier movie with that look. And then we're picking up from there and then taking it forward into what's really actually a new look. 
It's, it's funny. I said four years ago, I never thought something I would have done six years ago would come back into play when we were doing those wounds. Because, you know, again, John Blake, let me have my fun. You know, let me do what I wanted to with this Hulk smash. And of course, Joss Whedon signed off. But I captured that makeup exactly as it was because, of course, I had the photos. You know, I did it. You know, when I found out that the connective tissue was going to be that moment in Endgame, which is actually that moment in Avengers, I thought, okay, well, here we go. The discussion became about because he's in the TVA and they have stopped his powers, one of his powers being rapid healing, we had to put a pause on that makeup. We did the makeup once or twice. And I think the second time we did it, it was right, of course, because I will take 30 minutes to get it right, even though it's a 10 minute job. And, John, you know, God bless Tom, because he'll just sit there and watch me. He'll be very patient. But at the end of the day, I know that, that extra 20 minutes is 20 minutes. He should be in front of the camera and he doesn't need to say that. I already know that. So what I did was I hired a fantastic makeup artist named uh, Andre Freitas to come in and help me do a life cast. We cast Tom's face in February. Uh, I got the plastic shells, which uh, when the life cast is done, Andre puts it on a what's called a vacuum form machine, uses a very thin plastic, heats it up and drops it down over Tom's face. That vacuum form sucks the air out. The heat softens the plastic and it conforms to an exact shell of Tom's face. With that, I cut out the nose holes and shaped it so it wouldn't get into his hairline and put it to his face on the, I guess, the second day that we had wounds on him for episode one, which as everybody has noticed, we're slightly faded because he heals very rapidly. I mean, following the healing timeline of him at the end of the first Avengers, by the time he's in Central Park, half his wounds have faded, or I should say his wounds have faded to 50%. And when we first see him in Thor Dark World, they're gone. So with that in mind, it all happens very quickly. But we put a pause in it at about maybe more like the 40% mark. And with that vacuum form shell with nose holes cut out so he could breathe for God's sake, I put that shell, which is clear to his face and marked where those wounds were. And with the Dremel tool, I cut those spots in the plastic shell out. So we saved 20 minutes every day, just putting that to his face to start the makeup, me mashing some makeup through those holes. And now I've got my markers. We're off to the races. We saved a lot of time doing that. I'd say overall, we probably saved three or four hours in the makeup chair, you know, shooting an episode over almost a month. That was probably the biggest challenge, actually. You know, Douglas, you talking about getting the wounds back on uh, Tom's face reminds me of a story I'm going to tell as a side. And I don't want to contradict you and you say it's important that people learn everything. But I remember that you were really fascinated with wounds and injuries. So the story I'm going to tell is when we were on the Majestic and there was this weekend where oh, yeah. I suffered a, a pretty nasty head wound. Now, folks can go find that episode where I tell that story in full. It's too long to repeat now. But what I remember is coming back to work on Monday with this massive series of stitches on the back of my head. First thing you asked me was, can I take pictures of that? I know. <laughs> I promise you I'm more sensitive now. I would have led, I, I would lead now with, are you okay? Can I take a picture? And you There would be a comma in there. No, I know. I know. You might have You're done both, right. but I remember that. What a I mean, you established that I was fine and I was fine, but uh, yeah. I knew you'd use yeah. that on some movie in the future. And that's, you know, that's about being, you know, being the sponge I talk about, learning everything when we're young. And I, you know, doubling back on that, you made me think about another good challenge was, and I think it pays to be on your game and have those theatrical chops because when he lands in the void in episode five, he uh, is banged up. 
And it's about textures at that point. And, and Tom and I both knew, especially Tom, Tom knows what we're going to see and how we'll see it. So we did some wounds on him, you know, uh, defensive wounds on his arms from the fight at the end of episode four and some other wounds, some grass stains and some scuffed elbows when he lands in the void in episode five. And what's interesting is I never put a single prosthetic on him. I hand painted everything because he knew and eventually I knew because he told me and I trust him that it could be flat. It didn't need to be elevated. It didn't need to have a 3D quality. It was about textures. And I think my curiosity, my lifelong curiosity about wounds and my theatrical training, which lends itself to speed and being able to paint three in a 3D quality, allowed me, again, to do a 15-minute makeup with wounds and dirt that would normally take 45 minutes because we knew the parameters of what was going to read and what was going to sell. And again, that's a testament to Tom, knowing not just the beats, but how it's going to be lit how it's going to be shot, how it's going to be blocked. You know, he's, he really is a master at his craft. I wouldn't be surprised at all if he ends up directing one day. Talk to me also, Douglas, about realizing the Loki variants. At what stage did you get involved with other creatives in figuring out who these people were going to be and what their looks were going to be? When I was young and entitled, I used to get uptight about the fact that the costume designers were brought in months before the makeup and hair folks often. And then I met a costume designer and married her. And I began to realize that that was born from necessity, nothing more. So with that, I've since leaned into it. I've been married 17 years this past Saturday and with my wife for 22 years. You know, Alexa. But she taught me something, that it's not personal. It's about the bigger picture. And if a costume designer has the person doing their renderings add elements of makeup and hair to that design, they're only trying to sell the costume with an overall package. A picture looks so much nicer with the right frame. So with that in mind, I knew costume designers were never out to hurt me. You know, Christine Wada, the costume designer for Loki, had been off to the races as far as running with designs and, and, and starting to fabricate things. And, and her creative wisdom employed a lot of little elements into the variant designs. And those elements were a springboard into a bigger conversation, which was a wonderful creative Zoom meeting uh, with uh, Kevin Wright, the creative producer, Kate Heron, our director, Autumn, the director of photography and Christine and Amy Wood Hare. And I would say we used probably 60 to 70% of the elements in her designs in our makeups and built on those. Like there are characters with scars, actual 3D scars, because we wanted, we knew how they were going to be shot and we wanted them to jump off their arms a little bit. Connor McCullough, Dennis Lydiard both helped me design these variants and did a fantastic job. I say helped me. I handed it off. I would love to stand in front of that and, 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 you know, puff my chest about it. But I signed off. That's all I did. I handed it to Connor and Dennis and there were tattoos in there. There was eye makeup on. There were so many textures and layers that I, I would say it would be difficult to pick out any single thing. But if those single things were missing, it would be a grave mistake. It would be a big difference. You, it wouldn't play the same. All those little elements, maybe you only see them when you zoom in. But those textures are important in telling the backstory of each individual variant. Again, it was a team effort, a collaboration. It passes my eyes before it goes to the brass. But to do that and not, like I said, so many people have to uh, put a signature on it, whether it's a, you know, just a tweak with a brush or whatever. But if it's not broke, I don't fix it. 
and, and they did a brilliant job. I, w- I only wish, and I know, you know, we, we have great photos of those guys. I wish we could see more, cl- you know, more close up because we did some fun stuff on those variants. In the spirit of collaboration, Douglas, also talk to me about working with Kate Heron, who directed all six episodes. She was wonderful. I remember uh, I met her in Los Angeles very shortly after I was given a call from Marvel. That's how quickly it all happened. And I remember her assistant telling me, you know, a good lunch place would be something vegan. Now, I didn't know there was a vegan restaurant in Burbank called something vegan. So lo and behold, I'm like, okay, well, I can find a vegan restaurant. Watch this. So I thinks we're going out to get something vegan, right? Yeah. You know, where are we going? I said, we're going to get something vegan. I take her to this other vegan place and she does, does not understand what's happening. And over lunch, we tell the story and we get to know each other. And it's just really funny. And I reminded her of the story towards the end of shooting. But that was how we met uh, through a total miscommunication and misinterpretation on my part. And again, that's on me not doing my homework. You know, listen, I have I have plausible deniability here because it's called something vegan. <laughs> but that was that was our joke. And we immediately had a rapport because are you ready for this? She's a huge Buffy fan. I mean, a massive Buffy fan. She even has a Sunnydale sweatshirt she would wear on set on occasion. But that was the beginning of our relationship. And she had a very clear vision, a very clear and unwavering vision. But with that, and and it's a testament to her, it's really brilliant because it's the kind of thing you usually see in seasoned, aged professionals, the willingness to allow for the details to be fleshed out. She had the outlines and was perfectly willing to hear about how we should color in. So that's, that's amazing. When the narrative is there, your journey is laid out for you, but you get to help choose the colors of that palette. That's fantastic. And she was unwavering from start to finish in that desire to be creatively collaborative. Extrapolating from that, what was the atmosphere on set overall? The same, extremely collaborative. Again, you've you've got people who I think what it is, is it boils down to, uh, again, because of the caliber of the project and, and the high budget and high level of these Marvel things, they draw people who are on their game. And a lot of times what comes with people who are on their game is their egos are secure. There's a, a greater desire to reach out, to be creative and listen. And that's what we had. Sometimes Richard Graves, our first AD, who I've done several projects with, would shut these creative meetings down. They would just go on forever because we would just keep talking and creating and evolving. And it was fun and it was infectious. And there'd be little groups of six or eight people. And again, you knew, I knew when it was about props or weapons, I didn't need to be in that meeting. But if it was about hair, I know it might affect makeup. So I was in that meeting, but they were fun and easy. Briefly with me, revisit, though, the effects of having that long gap in between and then bringing the team back together with COVID concerns at the same time. We didn't lose anybody, obviously, because nothing was happening. I I say, you know, to people about that time, I know it was a struggle for a great many people and it was, you know, a financial struggle for so many people, whether they admit it or not. But for me personally, it was one of the most important times of my life because for the first time in my career, I wasn't looking for or waiting for a job because there weren't any. So everybody was going to be available. I knew this because Marvel and Disney were putting things in place that were going to not only make people safe, but keep them safe. We were one of the first shows to come back. So I didn't lose a single person. Talk to me also about the role of visual effects on a shoot like this. 
I think the biggest difference is that uh, with these things, almost every shot, as you know, has some element of this effects, almost every single shot. And again, from the very start, pre-production, I just read the writing on the wall. Uh, you know who you need to establish strong relationships with. I'm always friendly with everybody, but we had VFX reps, uh, a gentleman named Luke, his last name escapes me, and he was there from start to finish. And again, open to whatever we needed. There were times when we thought we might need a little cleanup here or there. Just note it with the script supervisor and let him know. Write it down. They were they were great. Uh, you know, they also scan all the actors and every single look, obviously, for that reason. So if they need to plug in elements, they were fantastic. They would let us know when and where, obviously, they were going to scan actors of all kinds so that we would get to make them 100% perfect or how we wanted them to be before they got scanned. Again, it's a testament to Marvel and Disney and, and the people they surround themselves with. It was really easy. It was really easy. And, you know, any requests were made and flown up the flagpole as far as VFX help that was outside the normal parameters. Any other specific shout outs to crew that you think were instrumental in, in getting this project to come together the way it did? I have a long list. You know, aside <laughs> from the actors, which were all fantastic, you know, sometimes there's a bad apple. I can honestly say there wasn't especially after COVID, there was nobody grumpy. You wanted to be there. And I think there's something to that. There was a relief in a very uncertain time to be back to work. So everybody was so grateful to be there and wanted to be there. There was never any strife. But I would definitely give shout outs to Marvel, Disney, Alexis Auditor, uh, Kate Heron, Kevin Wright, Michael Waldron, the writer, Michelle Blood, uh, one of our producers, Autumn Arkapaw is the DP, who was amazing and gave me so much love and help with our leading ladies in an environment where her light was either pink, purple, or blue. I don't know how she did it, but she did wonderful, wonderful things with lighting. Kasra Faharani, production designer. Christine Wada, the costume designer. My team, Dennis Lydiard, Ned Neidhart, Randy Owens-Arroyo, India Lacey, Kaylee Brooks, Nick London, Megan Arford, Connor McCullough, Bill McCoy, Andre Freitas, and of course, Amy Wood from Hair. Now, naturally, it would be easy to list the 30 people that helped us at the beginning of the shoot on the Ren Fair stuff from 1985, but you only have an hour. As we note, the episode will be on INDB so people can click through and make those connections easy enough. Good, good. Because well. you, know, you know, Skid, it takes a village. And, I, and again, I, I really like to build people up and give them props. And, and there were a lot of people that contributed artistically. And again, every actor was approached as a, as a character makeup. So that if somebody was grabbed and put in front of a camera, it wasn't a matter of making them ready for to be in front of a camera. They were ready. It's about those textures I spoke of early, earlier. You don't see them, but you feel them. And you certainly would miss them if they weren't there. Everybody got a touch, even post-COVID. Everybody got a touch. Now, if I'm sitting down to watch the series again, uh, as I think many people will do, it's quite an uh, enjoyable uh, six hours to kind of piece through everything that's happening. Are there specific scenes that you would draw people's attention to or add detail that maybe they don't notice on a first pass, but that you'd want them to pick up on on a second viewing? Not, not really. I mean, you would have to zoom in to pick up the, the dirty nails on uh, Sophia's hands or, you know, the, uh, the nick under her chin which I don't know that you ever really see, but you certainly wouldn't feel it if it wasn't there. I would say if you're watching it again, I, I, I like to think that makeup is a star. We're really a co-star. I would watch 
the brilliant acting. I mean, it's, uh, I'm really blown away at uh, especially Tom's ability to, and I think it's because he, you know, he was so immersed in the storyline, even shooting out of order, the arc of his, his own personal journey as Loki in this six hour mega movie, if you will, is told and it's brilliantly told. So selfishly, I would say, yeah, look at this, feel those textures, blah, blah, blah. But realistically, I would say, no, feel that overall impact, you know, enjoy the, the journey of the only Marvel villain I know of that has been able to redeem himself twice. Now, I think Loki is the first of these Marvel miniseries that explicitly sets itself up for a season two. Did you guys know there was going to be a season two when you were filming on set? Or were things ambiguous enough in how it was coming together that it could have gone either way? Ambiguous. It felt good. It felt uh, like it's something that should go on, but it also felt complete. And it felt like one of those things that what might have been or we'll never know. It was perfectly uh, acceptable for us to just consider it being done. You know, we di- it was ambiguous. There was no, all right, get ready. We're going to do season two. There was none of that. And also we were very focused on the, telling the story we were telling. So get, getting ahead of us, you know, wasn't really on our minds. Now I've read online that the next season will be filmed in London. Do you have any idea when that's going to happen or? No. In fact, is that for sure? Is that like confirmed? Oh, that, you know, again, that might just be uh, the trade rumors at this point. It's hard to say, but I I've seen it referenced online. I hate to admit this, but I am usually the last to know. I don't, (laughs) and I really do hate to admit, I'm a little ashamed because I don't follow social media. I forget what it was. I think it was on Ragnarok. Tom told me about something in the news and I asked a stupid question because I didn't know. And he just looked at me like, how can you not know that? It's all over the internet. Like, dude, I don't, (laughs) I just don't know. So, you know, that'd be fantastic. I, I don't know anything. I do know this. I trust Tom. Uh, and I trust Marvel. And if it goes forward without me, I trust that there's a damn good reason. But I, I suspect I'll get a phone call, probably the same, you know. And then when I first see Tom, I'll, I'll, I'll say what I usually say. Thanks for letting me know. Thanks for giving me a heads up. And he just smiles. He just smiles that, you know, like a Cheshire cat. Well, in the meantime, I don't know anything. I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know when I do something, of course. <laughs> when, when you hear something, let me you, know. Let me know as well. Will you let me know? Because, you know, the <laughs> London thing, that, that would be amazing. And then, you know, honestly, I just assumed uh, since it wasn't broken, we'd be back in Atlanta. But I, it could be spring, summer, or fall. It could be the winter. Because I just, as I'm saying that, it's like, ah, Marvel's pretty patient. They have it laid out 10 years in advance. So that patience is kind of brilliant. That slow burn, if you will. The content is so varied and different. There's something for everybody. So I get the whole long game approach and I appreciate it. We are entering a phase of filming where, in fact, there are other projects to choose from. How do you stay available for uh, Marvel or what other projects are you doing or looking at for your future while you're waiting to hear? You know, because I don't ask, I never know. You know, a closed mouths don't eat. But this is one of those things that, you know, I think that approach is the right approach. Just let it play out. But because of that, you're right. I never know. So staying available, I don't. I press forward. Because the business was shut down for half a year, there's a, a slow build for content or, or a no build for content. And, and of course, they need that content now. And with the explosion of outlets prior to the shutdown. Yeah, it's going to be a busy time and uh, for a long time, I think, I hope anyway, but I, I don't anticipate. And, and in doing so, 
I get caught. I got caught this year. I took a job called True Story with Wesley Snipes and Kevin Hart, eight part uh, one off for Netflix. And two weeks in, Tom calls me and says, dude, we're doing reshoots. <laughs> this is January. He goes, we're doing reshoots uh, one week in February back in Atlanta. I'm like, you're killing me, dude. I just took a job. So we talked about it. Ned, who was with me also on Dark World reshoots in 2013, knew Tom. And although never touched Tom during the Loki principal photography, it was only natural that I handed off to you know Ned. Now, here's the beauty of Tom. Loving him like a brother and putting that love in front of the business, I said, I'm the department head on this. If I was a hired gun, I could jump ship, but I, I can't jump ship without letting it go. And it'd be letting go of two months of work. You tell me, I will walk away from it and do this for you. Absolutely. And not ever mention it again. And he, he said, well, what's Ned doing? <laughs> and that's, a, and again, that's something people don't know. And I don't know if they should know, but Tom is one of the most kind, gracious, caring, loving human beings I've ever met. And that's the honest to God's truth. The fact that he's an actor with such mad skills and acting chops is a bonus. The fact that we get on so well is also a bonus. But he basically let me out because I was caught. I was in a situation and it was my problem, not his. I didn't want it to become his problem, which is why I would, you know, I'm dedicated to his, you know, whatever he needs because of what I just said. I mean, listen, if, if he was, you know, anything else, it would have been easy. Oh, sorry, buddy. I'm not available. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but, it, but we struggled with it. And, and it turned out Ned did a brilliant job. I can't honestly, I watched it. I can't honestly tell where the reshoots are. Well, Douglas, again, I think the project came together really well. You not picking up on the reshoots, I think, does speak to that collaborative effort that you said was present on the set. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, sharing these stories with us. And it's really good to catch up with you. I appreciate your patience. Look forward to doing it again. <laughs> we'll Let's it not again. take a couple of years. No, my friend, we'll do it again soon. Thanks, as always, for listening. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you'll check out some other episodes. It's easy to peruse the entire catalog at the website below the line, one word, dot biz. That's B-I-Z. All episodes of the podcast are also now on IMDb, so it's easy to cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send an email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Wan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. And a special thanks to our regular listeners. I appreciate your patience and loyalty. Take care, and join us again next week for a new episode of Below the Line.